It's a name. It's from an old story about a great warrior returning from battle. He just set sail, and the water god cursed him. And for the next ten years he drifted on the seas. The warrior drifted on the seas and able to find his way home, until finally the gods took pity on him. And they called up a warm wind that blew him home to his family. And he never left them again. It's an oversimplification of events, but yes. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I am Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are talking about Minutes 167 and 168, which begin with one last awkward kiss between Helen and the Mariner and end with the Mariner at the tiller of his new catamaran. Our special guests this week are Karen and Liz from Foxes in the Hen House. Hello! Hi, I'm Karen. And I'm Liz. Welcome. We're so glad you guys could be here with us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us back. Yeah. You are always a delight when we have you on as guests for our episodes. How could we not bring you back for the high seas adventure that is Waterworld? For a decidedly non-high seas scene in well, yeah. I, it's true. <laughs> There's but, like three minutes in this movie that don't include water. I say we're 167 minutes into the story. We got to get off the water sometime. <laughs> They're near the water, though. Yes. Like it's right there. Water adjacent. There's water in the background. Now, Karen, you were telling us before we hit record on this episode <laughs> that you did not watch the three hour version of this movie. So you missed out on all of this entirely. I did, um, which was a little unfortunate, uh, all things considered. So, yeah, I went searching on my Roku to see how I would end up watching this particular movie. And I'm like, well, I could rent it for $3.99 on Amazon. Or I could download the Peacock app. And I watched it through NBC, which meant there were commercials. And I had absolutely no idea how much of this movie was edited because there's a three-hour cut? Yeah. <laughs> which I did not watch. <laughs> Liz actually took advantage of the materials that I provided for you both and watched the three-hour cut. I read the email. <laughs> okay, I read the email, okay? And the email said, if you would like to watch three hours of this movie, hmm. here is a way by which you could do that. And I mm -hmm. said, bit much. <laughs> and so I... <laughs> it's interesting that as we come from different academic backgrounds, the difference in <laughs> discipline... And our dedication uh -huh. to the project at hand uh -huh. turn out very differently. Uh -huh. I'm just saying, you know, they talk about scientists and their, you know, Listen, their approaches. I'm just... Why would you write a gigantic paper about a thing when you can make a singular poster board that you can put on an easel and have people walk past rapidly, is all I'm saying. Just saying humanity's earned it for the long haul, is all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Three hours is a long time, <laughs> and I'm just saying that THC-laden edibles are legal where I live, so I might have not been sober when I watched the 
two hours of this movie. And then, of course, you know, I'm watching the clip that we're going to discuss today. And I was like, oh, I don't I don't remember this at all. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) Was this in the movie I watched and I just don't remember? Did I get distracted? What 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 was my cat talking to me at the time? Like, who knows? (laughs) Who knows? Now, Liz, as the person that went above and beyond and actually watched the movie we're talking about. Thank you. Yes. As the person who did the reading. What did you think of the full three hour experience that I put you through? Karen and I have both, you know, gone through marathons of like the extended Lord of the Rings cut. I've been through extended cuts. Three hours on my couch. That's fine. I can do this. I can, I can take breaks. It was interesting. I was trying to look for the seams. Mm-hmm. But it also it's been years since I watched any bit of Waterworld. You know, I remember when it first came out. I remember watching behind the scenes stuff like featurettes as, you know, like in the mid 90s. And I remember, you know, all the notoriety about it. I'd seen multiple clips and chunks of it because this is exactly the kind of movie my dad will just kick back and watch on the weekend. And I'd be in and out watching with him. I was surprised where the actual reinserted footage was because I couldn't really pick it out exactly. Mm. The part that it surprised me the most was that first act, the atoll. I got to the point where that segment of the movie had ended and it's ready to go on to the next point of the plot. And I was like, okay, this is a good breaking point. It feels real early, but I, you know, I need to go and like get a thing and go to the bathroom, whatever. And I pause and I see him like, wait a second. I'm only like 46 minutes in. (laughs) That was an impressively fast 46 minutes. Like the pacing did not feel like 46 minutes for me anyway. Then my next pause was like, okay, it's been a while. I'm going to pause. I got to go refill my water glass. It's only been a half hour. (laughs) What? Yes, that is a huge problem with this movie, is that you have these chunks, these action scenes and set pieces that are phenomenal, and they flow so nicely, and then you stop, and you just plod for a little while before you get to something else that's gonna feel good. Yeah. It's almost like it was a group project, and not everybody put in the same level of effort. (laughs) Oh, I really like that description. That feels very accurate. Yeah. Because the version I watch, which I'm assuming is the theatrical version, and there are nuggets of a really good movie in there that are not strung together. It's almost like everybody didn't get the same acting note. <clears throat> Dennis Hover. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, there were parts of it that I was like, this is legitimate. Now, wait, I have a question. Okay, well, we're going to put a pin in that question. Ooh, something shiny. Oh, no, wait, that was particular to my experience watching this movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's like someone said, I want to make Mad Max, but wetter. (laughs) And other people were like, well, we can do our thing with this and not just, just, I don't know, like the left hand had no idea what the right hand was doing, but like, I don't know. I don't know. It was inconsistent. The music composer was like, we're going to do some exotic drums, but now we're doing Errol Flynn swashbuckling. Mm -hmm. And then Miles Davis, you know, in an added scene. You didn't get to see that part, though, Karen. So it was just sort of like, I saw some Errol Flynn-ish. No, but you didn't hear the Miles Davis, which, like, that was the most baffling part for me. So, like, the music was something I was like, I'm going to try and ignore the soundtrack because this is driving me nuts. (laughs) It was like four different soundtracks put into one. So it's been an interesting journey. Speaking of my humanities background, I was a classics <laughs> minor because I didn't want to be a classics major because I wanted to have some marketable aspect to my degree. <laughs> I hadn't realized until I was watching this, which, you know, I usually watch stuff like this with 
side by side with like IMDb cast lists open and stuff like that. And seeing all of the Greek mythological names thrown in there. I was like, wait, oh, oh, I didn't think that. Yeah, okay, I guess they are adding that layer in there. Look at that. Mm-hmm. With Helen and, uh, and I'm blanking on every other name. So I've just said Helen, like a high schooler. Like, I've picked up on the themes. But seeing like the Homeric elements, you know, sprinkled in there, I'm like, okay, all right. Someone, someone definitely was trying to do something here with a theme. It's interesting. So did either of you catch this in the theater? Was it mostly on television that you saw it before? Did you see it before I forced this on you? I did not. I did not see it in theater. I saw it when I would catch it, I would catch it on cable. Usually when my dad caught it on cable. <laughs> He's an intellectual, but he mm. also is happy to turn off the intellect. He has an impressive ability to suspend disbelief just like that. It's just like, whatever, Schwarzenegger's, you know, like an American future cop, whatever. Let's ignore his accent and his wooden acting and just get on with it. And, and we're going to have fun. And I've picked up some of that, but I, ever since I've gotten more and more into script writing, it gets harder and harder. So I'm sitting there like, <laughs> But this part of the character, like, this part doesn't feel earned. I feel like there were some steps missed in the plot over here. Okay, but that was a really cool stunt. That was really cool. All right, that was really cool. So, yeah, TV. I hadn't seen it when it originally came out. I want to say it came out in, like, 95, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was the summer right before I left for college. And so I was a little preoccupied. And also, I mean, I went into this movie going, all right, I know that we get to see Kevin Costner drink his own urine after a thing. I knew that about the movie. I knew he had gills. I knew it was one of the most expensive movies at the time ever made. And I knew the little girl ended up to be Mac from Veronica Mars. (laughs) That is legitimately everything I knew about this movie before I sat down to watch it the other night. And again, there were parts of it that were just mind-bogglingly cool. And then there's just that one slacker who phoned it in at 4 a.m. before the paper was due. If there was a movie begging to be remade, I Mm. think it's this movie. Hmm. And I want to say, um, maybe fewer of the people in the movie should be white. (laughs) Yeah, that was actually, that was interesting. I was both impressed and a little disappointed. Yeah, where are they in the They're in the background. They're in the background. They're there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was like, that guy is definitely Puerto Rican. Yeah, there's a few. This guy, what is that accent? Like, they're they're there, and they're among the elders at the Atoll. They're everywhere, but, like, they're all tertiary characters at most. You got Zakes Mokai is the leader of the Atoll. The other Atoll elder was the bad guy from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. Mm-hmm. <gasps> oh, my God! There that's she is. Where I was waiting from. for that to happen. Yeah. The Gatesman <laughs> was the dude who killed Swayze and Ghost. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you had you had the primary mom from Big Love, which is I went. Mm-hmm. Where do I know her face? Oh, she yes. was on Big Love. My biggest argument about people of color is that if Enola is from here, and spoiler for next week, this is Mount Everest. This is the Himalayas. This is Tibet. She should be of some kind of Asian descent. Yeah, yeah. she should not be a little white girl. Yeah. The world building is another interesting thing that I've been just tearing apart in my head. But there can be something uh, attributed to the mobility of people over a completely ocean-covered planet. But at the same time, people are only going to have moved so much. Mm -hmm. So numerically, 
there should be more homogeneity in populations here and there. Trade does move people around pretty freely, but at the same time, how did it move everybody from the western, north, northwestern quadrant of the world over this way to make everybody suddenly like real blonde? And how did they all survive without getting skin cancer because they have much more delicate skin? Yeah, you've really got to wonder how the Nord, who is very specifically a Nordic-descended character, but the fact that his name is the Nord. Yeah. <laughs> how is he not a lobster all of the time? Yeah. None of them have sunblock. This is something that I worry about when going on beach days with my European-descended friends. You know, I'm just like, are you guys okay? Is this going to be okay? Is this going to be too long out in the sun? Because, like, there's twice that I've gotten sunburn in my life. Once, it was because I fell asleep on the beach with my sister for two hours in direct sunlight. That was the worst. And even then, I itched for a day, my skin peeled, and I had an amazing tan underneath. <laughs> Meanwhile, these people are all out on the water. Yeah. Literally just always on the water, 24-7. Like, that's exactly where you get the worst sunburns and most sun exposure. And for the most part, they look great. Something I do love about this chunk of minutes is that Jean Triplehorn, Helen, mm -hmm. her face does look like crap. It looks actively sun damaged. And I appreciate that. But she's also just so pretty. I, she is. <laughs> she's like, very pretty. Even like chapped and windblown. And okay, no one is going to have hair that isn't braided. There was a lot going on with hair. Like no one should have had free flowing hair. Like it all should have been in braids of some kind or with a ponytail. I mean, they had string to make little fish corsets. Clearly they all could have had their hair tied back. <laughs> Helen had amazing braids before the Mariner's hack job. Yes. He really oh, did such that a bad moment. job with that haircut. And she never fixed it. Nope. That's because there are no mirrors. She doesn't know how bad her hair looks and she doesn't yeah. care. It's not really the a concern. Beauty standards are not the same anymore. <laughs> I do appreciate that it stays messed up. It doesn't look like a Hollywood hairstylist came in and said, like, oh no, honey, let's just make this a little. Right. Let's at least even this out, this monstrosity. I but appreciate no. that they didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they filmed a lot of this on the water, didn't they? Like, didn't they film this, like, like not in the, in the sound Atlantic, studios? Right? So, oh, I mean, yeah. how much hair and makeup could you really do? If you're going to be just out in like a gale force wind. Mm -hmm. I want to believe that Helen has not had an opportunity to see a good reflection of herself since he took that machete to her hair. And so she just doesn't know. So sometime after this scene that we're watching today, she's going to catch her reflection in a puddle and then she's going to see what the Mariner did to her hair. And she's going to think back and be like, wow, why was I so nice to him? I was looking <laughs> yeah. like this the entire time. <laughs> Why was she so nice to him? And nobody else has said anything. Right. And meanwhile, Kevin Costner could have shaved his head and looked way cooler than he did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was a goofy haircut. That's true. I have always made my desire for post-apocalyptic existence clear. I don't want it. I do not want to exist in the post-apocalypse. But if I do... I don't want hair. I cut it all off. It's just an yeah. added burden. You have to keep it clean. You have to keep it out of your face. Like, mm. nope, just get rid of it. Mm -hmm. If I have to survive, it won't be with hair. I think I'd try and aim for like a Tina Turner sort of goal. <laughs> I want to look Ooh, impressive in the post-apocalypse. Nice. But like you have to insp inspire fear or respect or something, at least in my mind, in my post-apocalyptic plans that may have been discussed previously, yeah. if not with you. 
Oh, I'm pretty sure we have discussed it, yes. feel like we've discussed it. See, I've got a pretty impressive scar on one side of my head, so in the post-apocalyptic world, I would just try and shave my head as close as possible, Mm -hmm. and then I would have that added level of, there's something wrong with her, (laughs) which would keep people away, and I think that would be beneficial for me. Yeah. Yeah, that works. Let's zero in on Helen and the Mariner because they are the primary focus of our clip for today. Mm -hmm. The first thing that happens in this clip, the Mariner leans in to Helen and kisses her on the mouth. And then they separate. I know that Julie and I have discussed this plenty of times in the past, but I hold fast to the idea that the Mariner has zero interest in physical contact as far as affection is concerned. And it's my belief that the only reason he kisses Helen here at the end is because he knows that kissing is a thing that she places value in. And so it's an attempt for him to bridge the gap of their personal experiences to say, you know what, I'm leaving, but I have some sort of affinity for you. So here is a physical gesture that you recognize. I may not Hmm. be good at it or have much vested interest in it but here you go yeah that's an interesting interpretation he just leans in and mashes his face against her and that's really all the technique there is to it (laughs) i mean it's it's it definitely occurs in real life but um (laughs) for me i think and i think this was me coming up with a headcanon to try and make up for what i felt was i have such mixed feelings about kevin costner as an actor he gets frequently described as a wooden actor and honestly i think that's the descriptor that keeps coming up in my head too. Because I'm watching him in this, and I'm like, he's a competent actor. I'm not going to sit there and say he's a bad actor for all of the sort of characterization he tends to get across and like the roles he plays. But at the same time, I also wonder about him with this director. Because this is the same director as Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, right? Mm-hmm. Which, it's another one where I watch and I'm like, oh, Kevin Costner's acting. And directing, definitely, that can make or break an actor's performance. So the whole time, I'm just like, there's so much that's not being shown enough in terms of the Mariner's character development and whatever's going on inside his head. And while not showing the audience everything that's going on inside a character's head is a perfectly valid method of storytelling, you need to give them hints otherwise somehow. And I feel like here there's just there were just gaps. And I'm like, we're going. We went from like full on creep with two terrorized people on the boat with him to suddenly nice to not nice to back to nice and then kiss. And, you know, thank you for the name. I'm gone. <laughs> I could see an interpretation being played out and I'm curious to find fan you know, to look into fanfic on this. Wait. Oh, that's, that's a loaded no. sentiment, Liz. Mildly <laughs> curious, not curious enough to go act on it. I'll leave that to you, Karen. Almost to play him on an autistic spectrum, like mm. to place him somewhere there, like either that or also that he's just, he's not, we don't know about how his history of interacting with people in general. This is someone he's probably interacted with the most in a long time. And there's a lot of the eye contact between them can be pretty, like, is weird for him. And you could go back and use that as an explanation for how he interacts, that he only seems to be comfortable acting in an aggressive way. And now he's trying to be tender. And now he's trying to actually just be gentle and not aggressive and not mean and not violent and not shoving people away because otherwise the last words to her just feel really unemotive 
really flat. I think that's the only way that that works for me. Well, I mean, the kiss, you know, you know, when you're out of practice, I guess that <laughs> it just sometimes you just mash your face into someone else's, I guess. I have. I'm trying. He doesn't know how to people. Mm. And it was just in such a way that I'm unsure whether he doesn't know how to people as a stylistic choice or as a this is what I've got to work with choice. Mm. Which means I get to be uncharitable and make up my own mind, (laughs) (laughs) which is never a good time. But yeah, I did find his characterization to be like, I didn't I didn't really have any pity or anything. I mean, I was pissed off when he lost his limes, but like (laughs) he seemed to like engender that kind of standoffishness in other people. And he kind of took it with him wherever he went. So any sort of (sighs) vulnerability. Mm. And again, I don't know if that would have changed with a different director, if that was an acting choice, or if that was indicative of the limitations of Kevin Costner's instrument, if you will. Mm. I'm not under the ace portion of the LGBT umbrella. And I'm also neurotypical, so I can't speak to whether or not he was being non-neurotypical or whether or not mm-hmm. he was ace or a gender or whatever. Well, whatever is a really dismissive thing to end that sentence with. Again, I don't know. I don't feel comfortable making that sort of a designation. And I kind of wish mm. it had been a conscious choice on someone's part. I think that's it. I think it's a choice. It's an yeah. issue of like, I don't think enough definitive choices were made to keep it consistent. Something that we really miss out on in both the theatrical and the Ulysses cut that we're watching here is a detail that was added by Max Allen Collins in the novelization book. During the Miles Davis scene where he's listening to the CD player and Helen comes over to talk to him, we hear a little bit about the Mariner's backstory where he was born a mutant and his mom was nice to him taught him how to swim and how to read and all of this other stuff. Then his mom died and his dad basically put him on a leash and used him as a free diver. And so when the Mariner was somewhere between 11 and 13, he murdered his father and escaped. So yeah, according to Max Allen Collins, yeah, the Mariner does not do well with people. Hmm. Because the only nice person to him died, mm-hmm. and he was left in a slavery situation by the other person who was supposed to protect him. It's really something that should have been put into the Ulysses cut that I assume they just never filmed, and Max Allen Collins had to think, wow, how do I make this guy the least bit sympathetic? That he fled in a piece of situation. I buy the fact that he just doesn't know how to people. Not to bring up Firefly, but like, he's been in the black too long. Mm-hmm. His humanity is kind of gone. I mean, he has a, a lime tree. that That's his friend. His, he's like the little prince with the one flower on his little planet. Aww. He just doesn't know how to people. You can also attribute some of the awkwardness of this moment to the vulnerability of suddenly trying to extend that niceness and trying to people for the first time. Like, really genuinely trying. Even though, like, that's the thing, like, he, the moments he has with Enola, I'm like, suddenly he's great with kids. What's happening here? The jumps of that, but, you know, it's not a huge stretch. It's just a matter of whether a given viewer finds it believable. The 
relationship jumps that happen between the Mariner and other characters is jarring in this script. It's an artifact of the Raider script. When Peter Raider first wrote his treatment for this story, the Mariner in that story was just as standoffish, but for like slightly different reasons. And you get to the third act of that script and suddenly he and Helen are having this emotional connection that is not warranted at all. And when they decided to turn it into a movie and they brought in the other writers, you had David Toohey and Joss Whedon was brought in to punch up the script a little bit. Oh, no, really? They added more things to change the story. I exchanged a few emails with Peter Rader at the beginning of this project, and he's like, the story's not really mine anymore. I sold it, and then they did stuff to it. So anything you want to talk about, have fun with it, but I want nothing to do with it. (laughs) Oh, damn. I can't imagine. Now I want to win, like, the lottery, so I can make his version of it with a conscious conscious casting yeah the more time i spend with the raider script the more excited i am to see it realized Mm -hmm. so to speak listeners give us a couple of weeks you'll find out what i'm talking about (laughs) (laughs) going back to the beach for this scene helen says that she has something for the Mariner, something that should prove helpful on his journey. And the Mariner says that he doesn't have anything to trade with. And Helen specifies, no, it's not a trade, it's a gift. Now, here's the thing. Last week, Uh Enola pushed a music box into the Mariner's hands, and he accepted it. You know, like a gift. Like a gift. So I have to wonder... Does the Mariner look at this music box that Enola pushed into his hands and think, ah, yes, payment for rescuing her from the smokers? <laughs> Services rendered. He does the same thing with Gregor. Yeah. Gregor gives him a sack of dirt. Yeah. And yeah, I think maybe the Mariner sees that as payment for rescuing them. Yeah. They should be glad he's not invoicing them. <laughs> <laughs> My itemized receipt. Mm-hmm. Except what would they use? Because paper's too precious for that sort of thing. The Mariner also responds by saying that there's no such thing as a gift on Waterworld. I can understand his reticence of accepting something in exchange for nothing because the last time someone offered that deal, it was the Drifter at the beginning of this project 18 months ago. And as soon as the Drifter was like, no, you get this one for free. And then the Mariner's like, oh, my limes are gone. (laughs) I'm so glad you brought him up because I'm going to sidebar us for a second here. (laughs) All I could think of was that man was doing the world's best Don Carnage. (laughs) And it completely, I was just like, oh my God, he's Don Carnage. Wait, so Don Carnage from... Oh, from the Disney afternoon cartoon Tailspin. There we go. Yes, yes. (laughs) I was very tickled by this. Probably that might have had something to do with the gummy. But I digress. (laughs) Did it feel out of the blue to anybody else that she gives him the gift of a name? Yes. Has his name ever really been discussed? Or his lack thereof? At least once. The Miles Davis scene. Another scene that Karen did not get a chance to watch. Where Helen comes right out and says, yo, what's your name? And he says, don't need one. Yeah. But I don't understand... The rest of the movie didn't really seem 
to like highly prized names? No. Like there's so many names that just don't get mentioned, but they're in the the cast list. And that's the thing is I'm like looking at it, well, you'll need this on your journey. Like really? Why? Yeah. <laughs> I don't really think so. Well, why why will I need this? I mean, maybe because people will be able to tell tales of him. Hmm. If you can call him by name, but I'm like this isn't the never-ending story like we don't need to give you a name or else the nothing will devour you whole. Or maybe because there is no paper, the oral tradition has that much importance, and so that's why. But again, that wasn't something that was like brought up at all the rest of the movies. So I, I feel like that's the half-formed theme for the movie. I can see why it would have been cut for the final release, just because it's not a strong enough theme to keep in overall. Like If you're trimming it down to something more theatrical length... Yeah, I'd be looking at this, I'm like, this is, you know, this is a very nice heart-to-heart moment, but unless it was threaded more consistently throughout the movie, not even necessarily mentioned every five minutes or anything like that, just sort of given more weight earlier on, Mm -hmm. so that by the time it came to this, it felt like this moment should feel more like an exhale. And finally, this happened, like, there's just sort of, like, there should be some meaning, some weight happening, you know, like, given to the moment where he he gets to have this thing, he gets to have this identity. Congratulations, we are baptizing you in the loving church of people. You have (laughs) achieved people. Here is your name, Bastion. I mean, Ulysses. (laughs) Moonchild. Moonchild. See, there needed to be a rule of three situation where maybe as... The Mariner floats up to the atoll. The first thing they ask him is for a name. And then you've got another instance with Helen saying, hey, what's your name? And then we needed Mm -hmm. a third instance of someone asking, hey, what's your name? And then here at the end, he finally gets the name. Yeah. Where it's only mentioned once before, it's not enough. Did they talk about whether he had a name at the atoll? I feel like that's where I would expect it. Nope. They just called him the Drifter. Like you said, if they brought it up at the atoll... And then if the bad guy was like, you know, I need to know his name, I need to know who he is, we don't know who he is, like, that gives him much more of a mystique, makes him much, that much more of a, a threat to the bad guy, mm-hmm. and then would, yeah, would give that a little more something. You could definitely tell that David Toohey was like, all right, he's a loner in the middle of a wide open expanse, he's like Clint Eastwood in the Fistful of Dollars series he's like mad max and he's the the man with no name as they say in thunderdome and Mm -hmm. even in fury road they make a big deal about oh i'm not going to tell you my name well okay fine i'll just call you fool and we'll get out of this canyon alive Mm -hmm. there's a lot of significance of names in general yeah but they just don't add the weight in this movie i was reminded of for patreon we watched the patriot and oh yeah for a little while in the story in The Patriot, Mel Gibson's character, I've already forgotten his name, <laughs> is running through the backwoods of this area, picking off little groups of people and just generally being a nuisance to the British army. And the Jason Isaacs character, who I can never, ever remember his name, Lord Taverington or something, Ew. labels him the ghost and puts up wanted poster saying the ghost and then at a certain point they figure out who the ghost is and he's like what it's that guy (laughs) it was fantastic so we have that same thing of the name matters even if you don't know who somebody is you give them some kind of label that is for the time being their name Mm -hmm. 
Because it almost kind of seems like drifter is like an occupation, like a class of people. That's great. Oh, you're just a drifter. You're not nameless, whatever. Based on the experiences of this movie, being called the drifter is not a good name to have because the drifter at the beginning of the movie dies. The drifter in the middle of the movie dies. Hmm. And so it's very important that Kevin Costner is not just another drifter. He is the mariner. Mm. And they never actually call him the Mariner in the movie, correct? So Helen oh, mentions, yeah, she does. She does. Hey, call where's him the, Mariner. the Mariner? Yeah. So she sees him as a drifter by occupation, but doesn't want to label him as just a drifter, as a lower class person, a drifter. So she gives him a name that kind of means the same thing, kind of in their world means mm-hmm. the same thing. It just. It's like a step above. Yeah. She recognized in him his inherent, not nobility, but morality, whereas the drifters don't. And this is a guy who like kept his end of a deal when he was at the shop and, and whatnot. So I can see why in her mind, it's probably a good idea to delineate him from other drifters. Mm. In the UA Bowl classic, In the Name of the King, A Dungeon Siege Tale. <laughs> Jason Statham plays a character called Farmer. And at some point during the movie, he says, because a man should be called what he does. <laughs> oh, so he's called Farmer because he's a farmer for the entirety of the movie. And so now I'm just chortling about that connection. Well, yes, he's a drifter because a man should be called what he does. I'm reading a book in the Discworld series, Lords and Ladies. And I just passed through a part where there is a small acting troupe and all their names are occupations like Weaver and Thatcher and Smith and all this stuff. But that's not their occupation. So Terry Pratchett labels them as John Weaver, the Thatcher, and this person, (laughs) the something else has nothing to do with his last name and they're all mismatched. It was fantastic. Delightful. Helen decides that the name she is going to give to the Mariner comes from an old story about a great warrior returning from battle. He's cursed by the water gods and he has to sail around and he can't get home for a while, but eventually he does. He goes back to his family. And lives happily ever after. That drove me bananas. Yeah. Oh, the yeah. The ending that he lives happily ever after with his family. And he, and he never left again. It was oh, like, that's a my lie. goodness. So I wonder Ooh. if Helen was exposed to homer's odyssey in the same way that i was namely Mm. through the pbs show wishbone where (laughs) the little dog retells the story Mm -hmm. uh if anybody wants to look it up it's season one episode five homer sweet homer (laughs) but they sugarcoat that story so much because the part of odysseus in that story is played by a dog but i have to wonder is that all helen knew about it or is it that just all what david tui knew about it I bet that's all Helen knows. I'll bet that's all that has survived. Mm -hmm. Much like illnesses, great works of literature get eventually dumbed down for children. Mm -hmm. Chickenpox used to kill people, but now it's a childhood disease that's seen as like an inconvenience. Moby Dick is like the subject of a Tom and Jerry short. Mm -hmm. What we know about the Three Musketeers has been watered down for children, these great epic tales. And whether they've been watered down... 
for the sake of the social mores of children or because parents don't want to tell these really long stories to their children before bed. It's just, it's too long. We're, we're cutting, we're cutting it. We're going to, we're going to fix it in post. <laughs> I've heard about Three Musketeers. It's a candy bar. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or like the Hunchback in Notre Dame, like the Disneyfication yeah. of these great mm, works mm-hmm. of myth and fable getting like shortened and watered down. So the idea that that's all Helen knows is the... Yeah, he was just this guy trying to go home, and uh, then he came back. Yeah, the fairy tale version. I would also say we're talking a lot about simplifying for kids, and that's how a lot of stories are told. Is told, you know, their bedtime stories are told to children. But I mean, adults tell the stories to each other too. Hmm. And again, that's another filter through which stories transform. Right? I was just talking the other day to someone about the many incarnations and adaptations of dracula mm. and that's just a hundred and it was published in 1897 and then it's been through so many different iterations and it's been reinterpreted so many different ways and you know like some more faithful than others usually less and this is not a kid's story though there are kids versions of it but it's just what gets adapted and what survives the adaptation and what comes of the adaptations are what people are either interested in story-wise. It's also a reflection of their values, of their perceptions, of what they deem as scary or sexy or illicit, all of these things. And over the course of a few hundred years, that I'm willing to believe. So I'm listening to this and like, it's a little... Okay, well, it's not quite, but at the same time, one, she's got to spit this out in a quick monologue before he goes off to sea. And two... Uh, you know, how would these people have told this tale over time? Like, it's a hugely long story, very winding. It's a long trip. And the people would tell it in a way that would be of more interest to them. Focusing on, on like, the homecoming aspect of the story, which is, like, a big aspect of the Odyssey, is the homecoming aspect. I can see that being what people in this post-climate change apocalyptic world would zero in on finding that mythical land again to call home. Mm. That part made sense to me. The idea of like, oh, the gods took pity and sent him a nice wind. Like, well, there's, there's a lot more negotiation on that part with Athena. Yeah, he was lucky <laughs> he, had a, he had someone on his side, but okay. He also made a lot of mistakes along the way. But much the same way water will smooth the edges of a rough rock, <laughs> so too this story <laughs> of Waterworld has been streamlined. Or eroded. Yeah, or eroded. Eroded is a much better word. <laughs> Once this moment happened, I was, and after seeing, like, after having seen the cast list and seeing names like Helen and Priam, that was another one. But there's a guy named Priam. It's here in the cast list. The Mariner's pursued by a cycloptic antagonist. Mm-hmm. I just made that connection. Like, <laughs> he loses his eye. And he's like, that guy, I'm going to get that guy, you know, this whole thing yeah, about because him having he was outsmarted. Eye. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, get this, right? This occurred to me just like an hour ago. This actually ties back into the name discussion because his eye was put out and he's chasing after nobody. Yeah. Nobody well put his eye out. Ah, ha, ha, ha. I don't know who thought of that. Maybe I'm giving them more credit than I should, but I suspect that someone had to have thought of that at some point. Someone was very proud of themselves. Hmm. <laughs> someone was like, someone, high five? I'm going to get a high five for this, right? Nobody paid attention to high school, all right. Oh, I can't believe I didn't even. Yeah, I like I was trying to find the other like any references to other aspects of the book. Like there's no Lotus Eaters or even like Circe or Calypso. 
the nymph and the witch that Odysseus so faithfully resists. Doesn't resist. Yeah, it's it's not as good a uh, retelling of the Odyssey as say, oh brother, where art thou? Mm. But yeah. They use elements of it and sprinkle it in here and there. Yeah. Even the big showdown on the Exxon Valdez. (laughs) You could definitely like attribute some aspect of, of facing down the suitors. Just sort of like showing up, I'm gonna wreck you all now and reclaim my family. Mm. It does seem like they're both kind of an overreaction, and <laughs> I have one single problem, but I'm gonna kill you all. Mm-hmm. Sort of reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see some parallel there. A bit over destructive mm-hmm. with some short sightedness to it in the heat of anger of like, yeah, let's just, I'm just gonna blow us all up. Oh, no, wait, I'm blowing us up. How do we get out of here? <laughs> Maybe someone else was a classics miner out there and was like, just gonna slip this in there. Just gonna creep this on it. <laughs> you've got the metaphorical truck carrying your classic literature, and you've got your other metaphorical truck carrying <laughs> Mad Max, and they crash <laughs> into each other on the highway, and the context get mixed up, and then the writers come along and say, oh, <laughs> there's peanut butter in this chocolate. No, there's chocolate in this peanut butter. Brilliant. <laughs> Execution is another thing, but the marriage of those two concepts is not that far-fetched to me. <laughs> but it's mainly because of how I view Mad Max and how it's this example I like to point to. Like, that French is something I like to point to as, as just this beautiful blend of, you know, lowbrow and highbrow have, you know, just, they're bad, outdated phrases I don't like to use. But, like, <laughs> that sort of idea of, like, the lofty intellectual themes and cinema of storytelling but just you know real rough and tumble and shameless about it and not standing on ceremony like there's a lot baked in there there are plenty of you know classical themes and literary themes that make their way into those movies so putting those two together it's a great concept and there are a lot of things in this movie that i think kudos to you for for putting it in there like that yeah the cyclops here i'm like oh cool all right that actually you know that works for me helen gets to the end of this very succinct retelling of the odyssey and after building it up and building it up she reveals his name was ulysses and the implication is it is your name now and the mariner only says it's a good name it is the last line of dialogue spoken in this entire film there's no thank you for this name or goodbye see you later maybe just it's a good name and then that's it Does anybody have any thoughts about using the name Ulysses over using the name Odysseus? I am not terribly familiar with the Odyssey. I know like the basics, but what I do know is that the guy's name was Odysseus. That's like the first thing I know. Using the name Ulysses just kind of felt like, oh, I had to Google. I had to make sure that we are talking about the Odyssey. Is it super frustrating that Odysseus in Latin is... Ulysses, and then English comes along and calls him Ulysses. Between the Greek and the Latin, they just like threw it out and put in something that was kind of close. I don't know. <laughs> that might just be my frustration with language. Yeah, I don't actually know where that change is and what native mythology might be going on on the Italian peninsula that suddenly went from Odysseus to Ulysses. I can't speak to that aspect. To be honest, I've never read the Odyssey from start to finish. I've read it in large chunks and never the whole thing because I'm just like, I, oh God, it's get over lot. yourself, Odysseus. Um, <laughs> he's just not yeah. as much of a favorite of mine. The Iliad is great. 
I loved all the description of the action. As a 10-year-old, I was like, this is amazing. Oh, tell me about how many ligaments were snapped. I don't care. <laughs> Achilles is just a hot mess. I love it. Odysseus, I'm like, oh, you're just a jerk. But I guess when Ulysses gets used as a name, I tend to associate the use of that name with a more modern literary tradition. You know, like the 1800s mm-hmm. and then going into the 20th century. The Victorians. The Victorians definitely, they would favor the use of the name Ulysses because their idea of like the, when they got into super hard into like, you know, the fandom of classical literature, they came at it through Latin. That was the classy side of classicalness. I don't know where, like at what point in presumably the 20th century, the shift came back to Odysseus. I just know, like, by the time that I know I was conscious, like, it was Odysseus. It was the Odyssey, and it was Odysseus. Mm. And the Greek gods were the names that we knew those gods by. It was an interesting choice to jump it back to Ulysses, and I'm not sure what the choice was. Maybe they just like the sound of it better. The Mariner says, it's a good name. But I have to ask, is it the best name for the Mariner? When you look at the Mariner... Do you see a man named Ulysses? Because Kevin Costner has had a wide range of names over the course of his acting career, (laughs) from very salt-of-the-earth names like Earl and Bud, but then he's also (laughs) portrayed Wyatt Earp, Lieutenant Dunbar, and Frank What's-His-Face from The the Bodyguard. Oh, yes. yes. Frank What's-His-Name from The Bodyguard. uh, What's-His-Name? He was Elliot Ness? And the Untouchables? And then in the sequel to Field of Dreams, he was Iowa Farmer's dad. (laughs) Ah, yes. (laughs) I'm not sure off the top of my head what other names you could give the Mariner, because when you think of nautical tradition, Ahab doesn't really work, because there's not one thing that he's obsessed with hunting. In the Raider script, his name is Morgan, which may be alluded to Captain Morgan of pirate fame. I'm not quite sure. (laughs) Hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. <A> pirate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's the only thing Captain Morgan is known for is being a pirate. No yes. other brand integrations. <laughs> no. Especially now when Jack Daniels gets product placement in this movie. <laughs> exactly. Can't, can't cross the streams. I just looked this up because uh, I was curious and. Uh, According to the internet, which we know would never lie to us, it's a unisex name of Welsh origin, which means the sea. Or sea chief, or sea protector, sea defender, Captain Morgan has the etymology, apparently, of being of the ocean. Oh. That makes more sense. That's lovely. I really like that. Bringing a Welsh tradition into that part of the ocean is, again, drifting a lot of Europeans over to the Asian uh, region of the world. Yeah. Because I'm looking at all of this going, okay, so nobody has latitude and longitude. Now I realize all I know of wayfinding comes from Moana. But like there's an entire culture of people who've been doing nothing but going from island to island for thousands of years. There's an awful lot of white people in this. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think I would definitely see him more as Ulysses than in Odysseus. And this could be just like not everybody has read as much unnecessarily nitpicky and like obscure classical literature bits that I have. I can tell you, you know, all up and down about like Cicero's like sassy burns on people historically that nobody cares about. 
I associate Odysseus with cleverness. Mm -hmm. That's his iconic persona in Greek mythology and in the Homeric cycles. You know, he's the clever one. He's favored by Athena for a reason, and that he's a mastermind. This guy is not. (laughs) (laughs) He's not. He's just like, want water, you know, dirt give money. You know, woman bad, girl bad, everything bad, and then something comes up. You know, I'm oversimplifying, and I'm not, no, you know, treating no, the character like, with the, with any due dignity. I, I love this unfrozen caveman <laughs> lawyer aspect of this movie you're now presenting us with, Liz. This character for me is not in any way primarily cerebral in a way that I would give a name Odysseus to. Hmm. Ulysses, at least for me, separates things a bit because when I think of the name Ulysses, I don't think of Odysseus first. It's just separated from me and, you know, with more steps. You know, I'm going to think of Ulysses S. Grant before I think of the hero of the Odyssey. Right. I'm going to think of James Joyce before I think of Homer. Yeah. So at least, like, there's that bit while still making the thematic reference you want to of this endlessly wandering sea... Oh, God. Seaman. Uh, Mariner. <laughs> I'm an adult. The writers of this movie definitely tried to get across, okay, the Mariner is clever because of all of the tricks that he has built into his boat. Look at this thing. It's a transformer, Mm, and it's got a harpoon, and he's dragging the boats around, and he's got the spinnaker kite, and they put all of that into his boat. So when they take the boat away, Uh and suddenly his solution is, I'm going to blow it up, you can definitely get across, (laughs) okay... They were trying to make you think that he's just really hyper-competent, clever guy, but really, you get a little bit of that unfrozen caveman lawyer that Karen mentioned. (laughs) So that's the thing, though. I didn't think he made that boat. I thought he got it somewhere. Mm. So the entire idea of, well, clearly he's clever because look at this feat of engineering is not what I got from that. What I got from that is this guy found a really cool-ass boat. (laughs) (laughs) and that there's some other intelligence out there built into the mythology of like there being the dry place that maybe there was also these much more uncanny intelligent rather than the grog hit with hammer aspect that is (sighs) the mariner okay so you were looking at it as more of a james bond situation where Sure, he can do the things, but he can't outfit himself. He always has to stop off at Q-Labs first. Or not even that, it's just that at one point he was just with someone smarter than himself. Mm. He can't be the only fish person. Maybe this is fancy fish person technology. <laughs> and, you know, he he's just here. Like, is he the Diana away from Themyscira? Like, is he the only one of his people? And so here, we've outfitted you with the cool stuff. Be careful out there, son. Slap him on the back and send him on his way. (laughs) But yeah, I don't know. For some reason, I was so caught up in so many other things that thinking about him being this master tinkerer who made this amazing catamaran. And don't get me wrong, that catamaran is amazing. Mm -hmm. That looks a lot of fun. But I don't think he like built it in a shed just in his spare time on a Sunday. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I was a little too dismissive. He does employ wit in the action sequences, Mm. not just with the ship's features itself, but 
he can think on his feet in terms of like, I'm just going to kick this and it'll go flying up. I'll quickly put it around this guy's neck and now he's out of the way. He does use cleverness sometimes. I can jump from a high place and use the sail to slow my descent. Yeah. It's just, we don't see him thinking. Mm -hmm. That might also be like the movie language that my pop culture consumer brain is looking for, not finding, and that might be a disconnect for me. On the subject of the Mariner thinking about things, Mm. as Helen turns and begins walking away, she pauses, turns back as if she's going to say something else, but then she seems to think again and then turn and walk away. And I have to wonder, is this how you want to leave it off? Is the thought that I'm sure is going through her head. Is this guy worth more words? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do like the presentation that she maybe had more to say, wasn't really sure, kind of almost said more, and then changed her mind. Because when we see goodbyes in movies, in media in general, they're always incredibly, like, clean. Mm Mm-hmm. Party A says goodbye, party B says goodbye, and then they walk away, and it was a great goodbye. That's just not real. Goodbyes are awkward. You maybe have more to say. You don't say what you should. Maybe at the last second, you decide to say something more. So this goodbye, where she has this moment of indecision, it feels a little bit more natural. This all includes the very awkward kiss from a minute ago. Yeah. It's messy. I'm sort of playing it over now and watching this on mute here. I forgot how early and how sudden that turnaround is for her. It's just sort of like, eh, no, n- no, never mind. Just <laughs> trying to go. I'm like, oh, I've had those moments, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she looks very certain that she's got something else to say, but uh, no, no, maybe not. And then just to make sure she doesn't change her mind again, she runs away. Right. Let me get as far away from him as I can. These last moments with the Mariner are like, it's almost there for me in some ways. I mean, you mentioned, you know, it's a good name. I'm quite sad, like, just on paper, that sounds great for me as, like, a last line in the film and for the character. I watched it, I was like, that's the take you went with? Yeah? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's in the delivery. There's no gratitude or acceptance in the delivery, just the fact. Not even any consideration. She finishes the story, and without even a beat, he just goes, it's a good name. Or, like, maybe there's a beat, but, like, not really. He's just like, it's a good name. And I'm like... What are we thinking right now? Yeah. Guy, what's what's going on? Hey, what uh you gonna you know, like there are thoughtful looks afterward. After she turns to walk away, she stops, she comes, she she goes, she turns back, she's like, nap, and then she goes off. The next shot of him is him watching her for a second and then looking up and around at like this lush island and then going back to work. And then again he looks up to follow her and she's in running away in the distance at that point. Yeah. So like there's thought, but There still needed to be something in that moment of it's a good name. He's caught between the rolling waves and watching Helen run away. You almost want to reach through the screen and grab him and be like, do something, ma'am. Come on. (sighs) Yeah. And ultimately, he just decides to sail away. He goes the Enya route with the Orinoco flow. Well, he was caught between two harsh mistresses. Yeah. And he's going to take the devil he knows over the devil he doesn't. It's like we said in the uh, episode, I think like a week, I don't remember where we brought up Brandy, but you know, his life, his love, and his lady is the sea. Oh yeah, I think it was last week. The sea is a harsh mistress. Mm. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. There's a lot of songs out there about how the sea 
you try and get away, but it just pulls you right back in. Yeah. Uh, see, that was another another moment that felt like formula. Like, why don't you say here? This is not where I belong. I belong at, you know, the whole idea of like, I belong out there. I'm like, okay, but they, they're on an island. Like, they have, a, they have a shoreline. You can just go and come back. Gregor flat out says, here is a bag of dirt. If you need more, it's here. Come back soon. Yeah, I think there was more emphasis than necessary on like, you know, I have to go and never come back. It's like, but you don't. <laughs> Do you? That part doesn't carry the weight and the finality and the gravitas you wanted to. So maybe you should have gone slightly totally different. Like at least here with these looks, we're seeing that, you know, he's thinking about coming back probably of like, this is a nice place. She's nice people. This is nice. Might come back anyway. Ocean. It's all coming right now at the end where they sort of go halfway there in other scenes previously, but didn't quite hit those notes like I think they should have. So the last 10 seconds of this clip is just the Mariner on his little catamaran sailing out to sea. I find it interesting that in the theatrical cut, they go straight from the Mariner kisses Helen, walks away from her, and then they fade right to where we are now. Oh, that is weird. Yeah, so we lose the whole (laughs) naming scene. Yep. Okay. I think the name is nice. It doesn't necessarily feel earned or too terribly important but it's still a nice moment yeah that i appreciate that's true so i think it is a shame that it was cut out what i most appreciate about the scene is that it's a quiet moment with just the two of our leads yeah gregor and the enforcer aren't hanging out five feet away because they literally just walked away this is a moment of genuinely just the two of them okay so it's basically the first 10 to 12 seconds. Like, I'm just thinking what the theatrical cut was. Like that first 10 to 12 seconds of like this section of minutes we're looking at. Mm-hmm. And then like, you know, as soon as they kiss and turn away, just it's him on the boat. Yeah. Ooh. As far as these two minutes are concerned, just the first 17 seconds and the last 10 seconds are in the theatrical cut. Everything else completely cut out. Can confirm. <laughs> <laughs> And, yeah, in that case, keep the monologue in. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, that's way too abrupt. I don't know about that. I mean, it's very, especially for, like, a 90s action movie, it's just very much like, oh, I'm too strong, now I must go. I'm going to kiss you. Mm, and, you know, when people kiss in a movie, I have a sound effect. This, I'm, 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 I'm. <laughs> this is what kissing sounds like, right? I'm not single for a reason. <laughs> My dad has a sound that he makes when people kiss in the movie. And this is probably where I get the habit from. His is, <laughs> And so that's what I think of when I see, like, just picturing him just kissing kind of awkward looks and him just looking away and turning away like, no, and then going. And just, oh, that just like, it's too much. I must be a man. And now that's not a satisfying ending. That gets to the whole idea of, is this a conscious decision? Is this what he thinks men are to be tough? I'm at a loss here because even him, like, reaching up to, like, cup her face and run, like, a thumb across her cheekbone, it's a Mm. good name. It would have instilled some sense of, like, intimacy and connection between the two of them that didn't have to be essentially sexual. Mm -hmm. If he was really going for the idea that the Mariner is not a sexual being, which, I mean, great. That's fine. But human connection... (laughs) involves some kind of intimacy. I want to dip into the book really quick. I'm fascinated by this book. 
Yeah, no, so am I. Not so much that I can read a full-on section. I just want to express my frustration in the way that Max Allen Collins decided to reveal the name that Helen gave to the Mariner. Because there is a section where the Enforcer, Gregor, and Helen are giving the Mariner gifts before he leaves. And there are a few lines of dialogue where Helen's like, it's a name, she said, and she gave it to him. And it doesn't say the name in that section. And then we skip down to Helen and Enola on the top of the mountain where they find the nameplate that we're going to see in next week's episode, where Enola says, that name, Enola said, where did you get it from? And Helen says, an old, old story about a great warrior who returned from battle. An old story? Yes. Tell me, Helen. Tell me the story. And Helen did. And so they fake you out for the second time. And it's not until the epilogue where old lady Enola is telling the story where she's like, the name was Ulysses. And I'm like, come on, Max. You're like five pages away from the end of this thing. Just wrap it up already. <laughs> oh, that is so frustrating. Okay. I said five pages. The epilogue is one final page. There are yeah. 321 pages in this book. And he was being all coy about it in the last three pages. Come on, putting Max. In, putting in the epilogue feels... Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. Making old lady Enola the person who's been telling this story the entire time is way too road warrior for me. Oh, yeah. It is. To tell the tell. Exactly. Captain Walker. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought a lot about. So here's another aspect which I know will probably come up somewhere, but I'm here today, damn it. Here's the problem. We have Enola. She is basically the Moses, the Kal-El. Her homeland, her people are dying, so to save her, they push her into the ocean. And what do those people do? Bring her right the hell back where she is the youngest person in the group so she can watch all of them die and be alone again. Oh, no. <laughs> Well, well, there is one thing that we should call attention to. Helen may be with Fishchild. <laughs> there may be a little oh baby Costner swimming around in there right now. Yeah. Maybe totally with Fry. You're right. With Fry. Anola <laughs> <laughs> could be getting a little half-brother sometime in the next several months on that island. I know we were talking earlier about, oh, maybe Helen and the Enforcer are going to hook up. That'll be a cool couple. But uh, yeah, that's a possibility that we didn't really consider. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, as they've been settling in here and like, okay, this is going to be our home now. It's great. Look at all this lush and green and wonderful. Did I miss what happened to the other surviving atollers? Oh, yeah. They just abandoned them on the ocean. Yeah. They just left like, them behind. Yeah, oh, totally. I would think that like this isn't like we're settling here and no other contact with anyone else. Like we're gonna settle here, and at some point we're gonna get back in the flying machine, send someone to go back and say, "Hey guys, come this way. We got dirt." Well, that's what I love about the conversation that Helen and the Mariner have back in episode eighty-three, where the Mariner straight up tells her, "Hey, if I find other people that are decent like you are, I'll tell them where to find the island." And Julia actually had a problem with him being the gatekeeper to Dryland. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. I was very, very torn about it because the leftover Atollers, they were not good people. Yeah. They were assholes. And frankly, I don't want them on Dryland. That's fair, man. But humans belong on Dryland. We don't belong on the water. Yeah. So it just feels not right for people to be kept purposely away. This is coming from a second child who my older sister did stuff like that to me. Kept me away. Wouldn't let me in. That kind of stuff. I mean, on an absolutist level, 
those atollers were the worst. I mean, how they were to the mariner was one thing from the get-go, but how they were toward someone who should have been one of their own was another. I saw no really justifiable reason for them to have had a problem with Enola from the get-go. You know, aside from being another mouth to feed, but the system accommodates for that. And they came up with a solution. So, you know, just in general, jerks. But at the same time, your point about humans belonging on dry land, fair. And also just scarcity brings out the worst in people. So how much would things shift once they came to a place where all their needs were met? Ah, that's a very good point. Would they continue to be such incredible, selfish, I mean, selfish in in one way, you know, just, I don't know, prejudiced jerks. (laughs) I can definitely see them still being pretty xenophobic about any newcomers to the island, but I wonder how that would shift and how soon that would shift as Mm. they settled into this wonderful, just endlessly green place for them. Because one thing is for sure, they need more breeding couples in order to have a stable population. Yeah, genetic diversity is definitely... uh, Good. One breeding couple is just not going to cut it. My assumption, though, is that there are lots of atolls left on the planet. Oh, yeah. That was my assumption as well, and they're, they're just few and far between, because nothing's holding them in place. They're just going to go wherever the tides take them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's got to be more people out there. And it's just a matter of the mariner being like, you guys are all right. Yeah. I envision this bright future of people arriving and them growing a community that at some point will be sustainable, yeah. genetically speaking. I also envision a future where that happens and it's all good for a while, and then they overpopulate their limited space. Mm. They consume all of the resources, and we end up with another Easter Island. Or another Lord of the Flies. <laughs> if you think, like, well, what is the Mariner going to deem as you know decent people? It's like, well, not jerks. <laughs> but at the same time, how much thought will he give in as he goes forward with this person has an idea about agriculture, you know, in the form of agriculture that continues to survive in this world that we've seen. I would imagine he would have a head for that, at least because he's got his lime bush buddy. And he recognized a tomato plant on site. Mm-hmm. He did. So he, he knows his plants. But at the same time, this is a place that once word gets out is going to need protecting because the pirates, the slavers, the smokers, they're going to come at this island. And so you need to have a mind to send... Some good fighters, some good defenders, some like people with a sense of infrastructure, which feels like a funny word to invoke in Waterworld <laughs> in the setting as such as it is. But like it does require some good sense of infrastructure for survival mm-hmm. in terms of constructing the atoll and, you know, it's something like an atoll and keeping it thriving and keeping it afloat. Literally, that would be something I would be interested to see more of in terms of the world building. Yeah. In any future storytelling of it. The... Official sequel to Waterworld being the Universal Studios stunt show oh. really <laughs> does not delve into the socioeconomic impact of a budding colony on dry land. It's pretty much just, hey, everybody for some reason comes back to the atoll. There's explosions, people on fire, and jet skis rolling around. They don't really worry about all the stuff that we're talking about because it's a stunt show. At an amusement Uh park. (laughs) I do like the idea that not everybody needs to live on this island. They can live around this island. Mm. And they can be the more nautical set where their specialties, their contribution to the community is fishing Mm. and diving for things. Because this close to this island, diving is more feasible for not fish people. 
Oh, yeah. And then they trade with the people on land who have fresh fruits and vegetables and lumber. So not everybody has to live on dry land. Yeah, they just you, need access sure. to the resources from dry land. You can build an atoll around, around dry it. land. Yeah. Make yourself a little harbor. Yeah. I imagine a lot of people won't be comfortable on land. As I was watching them running around the island, I'm like, that's got to be real weird for them because like, the ground is a little too absolute. Mm-hmm. If you've been out at sea, when people go away on an extended cruise and they come back, it's an adjustment for them because now they're not adjusting for rocking and listing of the ground beneath them. They've got to lose their sea legs. Exactly. Yeah. It's land sickness. It'll go away right. soon. That's right. How did she know that? Because <laughs> Helen told her. But how did Helen know that? She might have, you know. Because she, she read the script. She's a good actress. Oh, okay, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm just like, imagine like, now it'll go away soon. Yeah. That might also just be her telling herself that. Yeah. Besides, you don't want Helen to go up to Enola and be like, this is how we live now. This constant sense of uneasiness and queasiness. Oh, this is our lives. Welcome to Dryland, kid. <laughs> now that is something you can build a stunt spectacular on. Dryland. <laughs> oh, just a bunch of stunt actors stumbling around on a concrete pad trying to stay upright, and it's just them constantly tumbling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can reuse the giant marble from the Indiana Jones stunt spectacular. Boulders are just going to start rolling for no reason. You don't know. It's dry land. (laughs) It's always good when drifters meet out on the open that something be exchanged. So Karen and Liz, could you let our listeners know where they can hear more of the stuff that you have made? Oh, gosh. That's out on the Internet. That's a very good question. Karen, what have we been doing? I've been doing a lot of Instagram. (laughs) So I have. Two, well, technically I have three Instagrams, but two of which are of note. I have one for my cat, because I am a woman of a certain age. (laughs) And you can follow her under Natalie Dormer of Cats, because she is the Natalie Dormer of Cats. But I actually have an art project that I've been working on. Being a woman of a certain age, I'm not supposed to tell people that I'm 44 years old, but I don't really care. So I turned 44 this year, and I decided after a very roundabout process where I thought someone was pretending to be me on Instagram, but no, it was an account I made and had forgotten about. (laughs) (laughs) That if you go to Karen underscore Bing, like the search engine or Chandler, I have what's called Project 44, and every day at 444, I stop whatever it is I'm doing and take a picture of something close to me. I'd never been much of an art person, but I kind of thought, why not? And I'm working on my photography skills, and it's just kind of neat. So that's the thing I'm doing now, is taking pictures of my cat and random shit at four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing anymore, guys. <laughs> I, uh, you know, right now I'm not, I'm not in a position where I'm doing too much podcasting in general, except that though I do, whenever they let me into the space, whenever they let me into the Zoom, I'm on a start of steer her by to just generally be a nuisance <laughs> and to confuse anyone who still might mix up Caitlin's voice and mine, including ourselves. But see, my Instagram is like there. I put like five pictures up and have mostly just used it to follow other things, but I'm more often and more active on Twitter and I'm still there at Hollywood fat cat. Yeah. Aside from that, I don't know. We'll see Let's see if I can get myself a decent recording space set up in my next residence. Might actually have more to put out there. 
Nice. As for us, listeners, you can come back next time. We will see the Mariner sailing away from Dryland. Helen and Enola will find a commemorative plaque, and the end credits will begin to roll. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 84. We'll see you next time.